0: Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Before we give a background to our text and go over our text, let's bow in prayer once again and ask God to help us. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we are dependent upon you for every breath, let alone the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word. And so, our Father, we pray for your mercy, we pray that you would help and give us the ability to uh, speak your word and to hear your word without distraction, pray that you might uh, Help us to be alert and pray that you would be honored by all that's said and that as a result of what we hear, that we would be light shining in a dark place. Please hear us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text will be Acts twenty six seventeen and 18. Uh, the background to our text is that Paul is... The Apostle Paul is imprisoned in Caesarea, which is sort of in northern Israel near the coast, and he has appealed to Caesar, and he is there in prison waiting for his transport to Rome, where he will stand before Caesar. Then King Agrippa, this is King Agrippa II, Uh, who was Roman king of regions in and near northern Israel Uh, he stops in Caesarea and agrees to hear the Apostle Paul speak and Paul explains to Agrippa why he's in prison and he tells them of the Jews false accusations against him and that their real gripe is that Paul is proclaiming Christ and the resurrection And the true hope of Israel, which they can't stomach, and at least these these Jews. And then Paul goes on to describe his conversion. And he recounts Jesus' appearance to him on the road to Damascus, where he was off ready to arrest Christians, of all things, and to take them back for punishment, and, and in some cases, death. And he details Jesus' instructions to him to minister his word upon his conversion. So let's read Acts chapter 26. And we'll, let's start in verse 14. So Jesus appears to him and Paul and the, those that were with him. And verse 14, and when, he had fallen, and when we had fallen all to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting Jesus' people, but in so doing was persecuting Christ. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet, for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And of course, assumed in this section here is that Paul gets converted, and he submits to Jesus Christ and is ready now to follow his instructions, which he has done uh, and ends up in prison here in Caesarea. Well, our message will be divided into two major headings. The first one, and it's in your bulletin if you want to follow along, who is Jesus sending Paul to preach to? That's the major heading one, and we'll deal with that rather briefly. Secondly, what does Jesus say is the design goal of Paul's message to his hearers? And subcategories under that second major heading, First, that they may turn from darkness to light, and this is Acts 26.18. Second, that they may turn from the dominion of Satan to God. And third, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. And then fourth, that they may receive an inheritance. So let's begin with the first major heading. Who is Jesus sending Paul to preach to? Well, in Verse 17, it's suggested that he's there to preach to Jews. Notice what it says. Delivering you from, and this word is not in the original, but is inserted by many translations, to the Jewish people, right, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So it's suggested in verse 17 that he's going to preach to the Jews. But some may say, well, he's going to preach just to the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Is it really the Jews? Well, we just read in verse 19 and 20 that Paul indeed did preach in Damascus, in Jerusalem, and Judea. That's what the text says. So we can assume, therefore, that he preached to the Jews because that's where the Jews resided in great numbers. But then secondly, he was also sent to preach to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. Stated plainly in verse 17, delivering you from persecution uh, to the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Okay, so he's there stating it plainly. And indeed, where it's told in, in verse 20 that he went to the Gentiles and preached that they should repent and turn to God. Right? That's what we read in that text. Now, the New Testament tells us that Jesus had a particular interest in having Paul preach to the Gentiles. Now, also to the Jews was an emphasis, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. But we, reading the entire New Testament, we can, we can say that Jesus had a burden for the Gentiles. Jesus specifically directs Paul to preach to the Gentiles. Shortly after his conversion, Jesus says to Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, Acts twenty two twenty one. 21 And of course, the Apostle Paul understood his emphasis to the Gentiles when he calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles, right? So God's plan from the beginning... From the beginning of creation was to save Gentiles and to make them part of his people. And we see bits and pieces, shadows in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in which he prepares us for this great day that Paul is now a part of. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed right? So he's envisioning and going to teach Abraham that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. He tells them that in Genesis 17, 5. And then even the prophets, from David to the minor, major prophets to the minor prophets. And we read in Zechariah, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Okay? So this is God's plan from the beginning, that he's going to save not only a remnant of Jews, as we heard this morning, but he's going to save Gentiles, as we also heard this morning. So Paul understood God's plan of inclusion of Gentiles. Uh, As it says in Acts 13, we won't turn there, but this is what it says. He's quoting Isaiah. For thus the Lord commanded us, this is Paul now quoting from Isaiah, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. So the inclusion of the Gentiles, this it was at the time a stunning revelation. And this is why I want to emphasize this, and we've taught some of this before, but as a review, especially for some of the young people haven't heard this, new people here, but this is a stunning revelation. Because up until this point, it was the Jews only who God revealed himself to. And a few, a few Gentiles that happened to made their way into Israel, uh, like Ruth, and it was excluded, the Gentiles were in darkness, having without God and without hope in this world. That's what we're told in Ephesians 2. And if you would, now you have to keep a finger in Acts 26 and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're told in Ephesians 3 that this, to the Gentiles, that this is the mystery of Christ, one of the great mysteries of Christ. Right? In verse 4, it says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So he's telling us that this was God's plan all along and that he, but it was shadowy. It was sort of hidden in a way or it wasn't clearly revealed, but now it is clearly revealed. And what was that great mystery of Christ? It's stated plainly in verse six that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? So in other words, unlike what some people teach, it's not that God sort of as a parenthesis dealt with the Gentiles, but now back to his important people, the Jews. That's not what happened. That's not what's going on. It's that God is saving, yes, a remnant of Jews, but he's then bringing them together with the Gentiles to make one new people of God. That's what's going on. This is, this is what we are about. And that new people of God are called Israel. And we are Israel. And we are the ones that are God's true people, Christians. Christians. So we're not separate from the Jews and then God's going to deal with the Jews. No, it's that the Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ Jesus. So in chapter 2, in verse 13, you could see this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And then at the end of verse 15. That he might make the two into one new man. Establishing peace. Because there was enmity one to another. The Jews versus Gentiles. The Jews didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. They were separate. They condemned them. But now in Christ we're all one body. We're all in fellowship with one another. We're all in Christ. Receiving all the blessings of being in him. Well. We are the true Israel. And we're all lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it says in Galatians. If you are Christ's. Then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs. According to promise, we fulfill the promise of God made to Israel in the Old Testament. We're the fulfillers of it as Gentiles. Well, the conclusion, some applications, is that it's Christians that are at the center of God's plan of salvation through Christ, not Israel, national Israel alone. Secondly, many promises to Old Testament Israel are fulfilled in the new transformed Israel, namely us. And then thirdly, in the conflict involving national Israel currently in our day, in Hamas, right, and um, Palestine, our main burden shouldn't be that, oh, we've got to make sure Israel wins For for theological reasons, no. We ought to be praying that those from Palestine, Hamas, and Israel turn to Jesus Christ. That should be our prayer. That should be our burden. That's the center of God's plan. So who did Paul, who was he sent to preach to? The Jews, and especially the Gentiles. Now that brings us to our second major point of the message and that is what did Jesus say is the design goal of Paul's message as he preaches to Jews and Gentiles, to his hearers? Well, first of all, if we turn back to Acts chapter 26, if you haven't lost your place or didn't put your thumb there or a pencil or whatever... It says to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. That they may turn from darkness to light. Now, this darkness and light, I would submit, are spiritual. It's spiritual darkness and spiritual light. And we're going to start with light so that darkness will become plainer, as as you'll see, hopefully. Hopefully. Now, what, what do we mean by spiritual light? Well, I have just my definition, and, and others may be better. Mine is rather broad and includes maybe some subpoints under what light is. But spiritual light basically, simply, is the realm of the triune God and his word of truth. That's what light is. And everything associated with the triune God and his word is light. And I believe the scriptures support that position. God is the essence of the spiritual world around us as he's spirit. Now, this is a real important question because this is what, this is what our eyes are open to, is that there is a spiritual world around us, but we can't see it, Right? So we have to ask the question how do we know there's a spiritual world around us? This spiritual realm that is called light? Well, that that's a great question. And the answer to the question is that there's two main at least two. I mean there's many, but I'm going to emphasize two reasons why we believe there's a spiritual world around us, and one of them is the creation. And I've mentioned this before, and I mention it wherever I go in our day because right now people are ignorant that God made them and that God made this world. And so wherever I preach, I'm going to preach on this. I don't care how many people accuse me that I'm repetitive. That's all right. Let, me, let them accuse me I'm repetitive. That's fine. I'm going to preach that God made the world and that there's a God that we're accountable to. And I was just thinking about this the other day. There's so many things you could think about, but just think of the human eyeball, right? So I'm thinking of the human eye. It's so intensely complex. Brilliantly designed, the eyeball. And it's connected to the brain, right? And there's brain waves going from the eyeball to the, to the brain. So you need both of them in place all at, all at once. You can't have an eyeball without the brain. It's not going to work. So you need the brain, and the brain is intensely complex, right? Right? So you need, and then you need the brain waves to connect to the eyeball. It all has to be there in place. You can't get the eyeball and then wait a few million years for the brain to develop. It, it doesn't work. Science is utterly clueless in this regard, and and it's not science per se. It's just guesswork. It's it's uh, suggestions about what could have happened that we wait around for a few million years for the human body to develop. Well, you can't wait around a few million years and wait for the brain to develop before, after the eyeballs created. No, you need it all at once. And what's the answer? Where do we find some place where all at once it happened? God's word, right? It's in God's word. God said, let there be light, there was light. God said, let us make man in our image. He made man in his image, one one instant. And then he makes Eve, takes Adam's rib, and we were just talking about this last night, is that he made Adam's rib. Now notice that Adam is already there, he's a man, and then he goes and makes Eve. Now he didn't have to wait a few million years. Eve was there just like that, And, and he brought Eve to Adam. And and Adam was still young enough to have children because he says, be fruitful and multiply, right? So, the creation. But then also to reinforce that, God sends his son and he rises him from the dead. He rises him from the dead after three days being buried in a tomb. And so what do we say? That's impossible. You can't have a guy dead in the tomb. And as it's said in the, in the raising of Lazarus, by Jesus Christ, by the way, is he was dead four days, and they didn't want to open the tomb because he's going to stink. And so therefore, that's impossible. Science can't explain how you get somebody back to, from, the, from the dead after three days being buried. <laughs> after four days being in a tomb, dead. Dead. But we know that there's a spiritual world and that God is the essence of that spiritual world. He's light and that he caused those men to rise from the dead. Jesus Christ spoke the word and out came Lazarus from the tomb. And they had unwind the uh, wrappings that were around him, right? Well, what else? So we've got the spiritual world around us and we've got the triune God. Right and which basically comprises the spiritual world around us. Now, what does the spiritual world consist of? Secondly, God Himself, as we've heard already, and our hymn was based on this particular verse. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Right? We're told that God dwells in inapproachable light, First Timothy six sixteen, and then secondly, God the Son. Jesus Christ. In him, John 1.4 says, was the life. And the life was the light of men. Now notice the connection between life and light. Wherever we find spiritual light, we're going to find life. Life is at the center of light. And they are intimately connected. Life and light. Where there's light, there's life. And in union with Christ, if we are joined to him, we are in the light. And the light is in us. You see how that works? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Right? That's Jesus Christ. And what about the spirit? Well, the as far as I know, maybe I've missed a text or something, but I, don't, I didn't find a text where the Spirit is actually called light himself. But he's the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And you can't separate the, the person from the Spirit. So if the person is light, certainly the Spirit is light. And we know God sends the Spirit to open blind eyes. In our text, it says to open their eyes. So that they may see, so that they may turn from darkness to light. So the eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. This is what it means in part to be born again. That we might see the spiritual world around us and actually believe it's there. And live for it. The evidence is overwhelming, but you know the heart of men like us. We stiff arm it. And we don't want to believe it. And we've got to, and I'll get into that later, but that's the nature of men. Well, finally, it's God's word. What else does light consist of? God's word. The word of truth. It's not surprising since God is light, since Christ is light, and and since Christ is called the word, Right? He's called the word of God in Revelation, John 1. And it says, your word is a light to my pathway. Chris had quoted it earlier. Your word is a light to my pathway and a lamp to my feet. It's not a surprise that if God is light, his word that he speaks is light. The prophetic word is as light shining in a dark place. Pastor Hill preached on that. from 2 Peter 1 well spiritual light is the realm of the triune God and his word of truth now what is spiritual darkness well spiritual darkness is everything outside of God and his word it's everything outside of God and his truth so what does this mean for those who are in spiritual darkness well What does this mean? Is That means it's a life of falsehood, ignorance, and blindness. It's a bleak picture. No longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded, darkened in their understanding. You see, it's in the darkness. Darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, these people could be smart as whips. I mean, these, these people could be, have three PhDs after their name. Smart, but in terms of spiritual wisdom, don't have a clue. Don't have a clue. They don't understand where they came from. They don't understand where they're going. They don't underst- And we were in the same boat, If uh, each of us who were converted. We, this is what our thinking was. We didn't understand the spiritual world around us. We didn't understand what we're supposed to be doing here on earth. We didn't understand what our purpose is. We don't understand what the source of real uh, blessing and fulfillment and joy is. We didn't, we don't, you don't understand any of that being in the darkness, even though you got three PhDs after your name. Jesus said, or First John says, The one who is in the darkness walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So what does this mean for those in darkness? Not only a life of falsehood, ignorance, and blindness, but a life of ungodly living. And it makes perfect sense If you are living in the darkness, it won't be long. Away from God, it won't be long before there's sin. Now, it doesn't mean that you are sinning in the darkness in every possible sin you could commit, but there's certain sins that you just can't give up. That's the nature of darkness. And it's not like Christians... Christians have their remaining sin and that they're battling with and when they stumble or when they are tempted they run to the cross and in sometimes in tears asking God to forgive them and to lead them on the path of righteousness and forgive me O Lord for those thoughts forgive me that but that's not the person in darkness. He's not running to the cross. He the, the only time he's sorry that he committed some sin is if it happened to negatively impact him in this world. Or he might have a twinge of conscience, but then he just stifles his conscience. He's, his conscience is seared. So they're not subject to the law of God and neither indeed can they be, Romans 8:7. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness were commanded. So this is a command to Christians. Everyone who hates the light does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Ah, there's the key that Jesus hit it right on the head. Is that there's these certain sins that we kind of don't want to ever give up. We know they're wrong, but, you know, I'm having a good time here. And so we don't want to come to these Christian meetings because, you know, that sin might just come and be exposed. And so I don't want to to deal with that. I don't like Christians. I don't want to be near Christians, and that's why some people hate Christians and want to kill them. Is because their conscience bothers them. God's put the law of God on everyone's heart in the general sense. And so everyone has a... Until they completely sear their conscience, everyone has a, is conscientious that they're doing what's wrong when they disobey God. Well... It's also, we've kind of touched on this, but uh, what does it mean for those who are in darkness is that they live in the realm of the unconverted. Jesus said, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in the darkness. So the assumption is they're in the darkness and when they're converted, they become light. And there's no third category. By the way, there's no middle gray area where you're in dark. You're kind of in the gray, or you know, I, I I might get saved in the end. But no, you're either we're either in darkness or we're in light. One or the other. But then finally, those in the darkness they suffer consequences, and they're not pretty. They live in the realm of death, punishment, misery. Sorrow and separation from God. It's not a pretty picture. The the pleasure of sin for a season, it is for a season. Uh, We're not trying to deny here that sin doesn't have its positive things in terms of temporary pleasure. But boy, is there pain at the end of it. Both in this world and in the next. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And in the life to come, as we read in Matthew 25, where Jesus is on his throne and and the whole thing about his second coming, cast out the worthless slave into outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the end of those who are in darkness. The weeping and gnashing of teeth in that darkness carries with it to the next life. They never get out of darkness. It's a horrible thing. And when they get to that darkness, there's fire. Well, how could there be fire, darkness with fire around? Well, I don't know, but this is what God's word teaches. Yeah, we don't want to argue with that. In other what all we know is there's deep misery. Death, punishment, misery, and sorrow. The consequences of sin are great. Thank God. We have escaped the grips of sin. In any case, from a positive standpoint now, what does it mean for someone who turns from darkness to light? What does it mean? Well, we become sons of light. This is interesting. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. John 12, 36. God saves us and brings light into us. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He shines light into us. And we're brought in union with Christ. Light in us, us in light. And so we become sons of light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And again, the connection between light and life. You were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Ephesians 5.8. And of course, the fruit of light is what? Goodness, righteousness, and truth, Ephesians 5.9. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. That's what he told his followers, right? You are the light of the world, us in light light in us we are the light we're not the source of the light but we are in christ and he is light so we become as it were lights many lights right let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven and that's a great application is that okay? We're light, so now what? Do we just shine in our bedroom and just let it, or in a monastery? No. No, we're to be among men. Not to be intimately, you know, bound with them, but we are to be amongst them that we might shine light on them and that God may move and open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. That's the goal. Well, back to Acts 26, 18, uh, let's look at, again, the second point, what Jesus said is the design goal of Paul's message, to turn, first of all, from darkness to light, and second of all, that they may turn from the dominion of Satan to God. That they may turn from the dominion of Satan to God. Now, the word for dominion, uh, in some translation, is power or ruling power, authority over this is what the greek word means and it basically means that satan's in control of us he has power over us he has authority dominion over us in other words we're slaves of satan that we may escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will 2 timothy 2:26 Now, on the other hand, Christians are said to be slaves of God. Now, we are slaves, therefore, of one or two people. And this follows with the idea of light and darkness. So you can see that we're either light or darkness. And if we're in darkness, then we're slaves of Satan. It's kind of an explanation for why we do what we do in the darkness. Because Satan's there. Now, Satan can tempt us as well, but he doesn't have dominion over us. But he has dominion over those who are in the darkness. And so therefore, they do his bidding. Not necessarily in every area, but in many areas, or in some areas. And they give themselves to those things. Now, what are the characteristics of being slaves to Satan? Well, first of all, we worship anything but God. That's Satan's goal. So it's that we worship something else and this is what's true of the world and those who are in darkness is that they will worship something they say oh i'm an atheist oh no you're not you worship something and in our day people give themselves to certain causes and it becomes their god it's kind of like no cows this is a big thing nowadays is we got to save the planet from you know this planet's going to be destroyed and we're all going to die because of global warming this is what we're told, and they say one of the reasons is there's too much methane in the atmosphere, so we got to get rid of the cows. I, I kid you not. This is, this, there are groups that are, that are uh, pushing this whole idea of get rid of the cows. You can't have cows. Too much gas in the air. <laughs> it's absurd, but they, but they give their lives to this stuff because they're not worshiping God they're worshiping the, this world and it's all about this world and their lives and their purpose and their and this is their purpose in life if they've they've rejected purpose of serving God and so now they've got to serve themselves or serve the world serve serve other whatever they're doing they're not serving God so they push no cows but what are the characteristics of being slaves to Satan? Well, just like in the darkness, practice certain sins. The one who practices sin is of the devil. That's what it says, First John 3.8. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. First John 3.10. What are the characteristics of being slaves to Satan? We oppose the truth of God's word at certain points. We practice certain sins. There, we're wedded to those sins that we can't, get, we can't ever get rid of, and we're not seeking to get rid of, by the way. And again, that's, we, I don't want to discourage anyone. You know, we, we battle with sin as, as Christians, but we are pressing on to righteousness. And, though, and where there's always those sins that nag us, but we've got to keep fighting. We can't put down the sword. We can't get discouraged and say, what's the use? We have to keep fighting and keep going to the cross and keep seeking forgiveness and t- seek the power of the Holy Spirit that we might overcome these things. But not the person in darkness, not the person who's slave to Satan. He's, there are certain sins he's not going to let go. He doesn't care what anybody says. So we are opposed also, those who are slaves, to God's word. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. That's why they hated him. They were of their father the devil, even though they said they were of God. So there's a lot of people that say they're Christians. There's a lot of people that... You know, we were talking about the Crusades, you know, and people use that against joining Protestantism, that Roman Catholics will bring that up. Oh, what about the Crusades? Well, there's a lot of people that say they're Christians, but do things for the world. They're more interested in politics than they are the Lord Jesus Christ. But in any case, what are the characteristics of being slaves to God? We have given our lives to serve God in Christ. So this is on the other hand. We, we know what it's like to be slaves of Satan, but what about slaves to God? Well, we are given, giving our lives to serve God in Christ. Be obedient to those who are your masters with fear and trembling. So he tells servants, be obedient to your masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart is to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Christ and his things, his church are now top priority. We're slaves of Christ. That's what we're told in Ephesians 6. We're slaves of Christ. Christ and his church are top priority. Now, what does it mean, priority? Well, it's kind of like eating right? We take it for granted. Oh, yeah, I've got to eat my breakfast, my dinner. Some people eat two meals. Some people eat three. Whatever you are doing, you're going to eat. You're going to eat unless you're purposefully setting the day aside for fasting and prayer or something. You're going to eat. And it's top priority to eat. So if somebody came up to you and said, well, why don't you just skip to eating today? You know, just skip it. You know, Maybe a couple days. You know, just don't eat. And they're not talking about fasting and prayer. They're just saying, "Why don't you just stop eating?" You get gave... no. I've got to eat. It's a top priority for me. We we. It's and this is what is meant by Christ being a top priority. We need to meet with Him on a daily basis. We need to have communion with Him. It's got to be a top priority. If it's not, we're going to die spiritually. It's our lifeline to heaven. So that's why we're concerned about you know, this is why you know we say, you know, we want you to be here for our services. Why? Because we want Christ to be top priority in your life. And this is exemplary of a true Christian, is he wants to be with God's people. Not as a rule or something to check the list off, but we're talking about having a heart for Christ. We're talking about Having a heart for God's people, for God's word, for and and anyway, I, I understand it's hard, especially in the lunch at post-lunch er- era. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it can be tough. i you know i I struggle myself. That's why I'm drinking coffee nowadays. <laughs> I never used to drink coffee all my life. I'm drinking coffee now. Well, anyway, um, Christ and His things are our priority. Now, what are? Characteristics of being slaves to God, God in Christ, our Master is our Master, and we obey Him. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Romans six twenty two, and then that's in this whole area of no longer being slaves of sin, but now being slaves of God, and we obey God. Thirdly, that we abide in God's Word. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. He who is of God hears the word of God. Now, some applic- uh, an application in this area. Some people might say, there's no way I'm going to follow Christ because I don't want to be a slave of anybody. Well, it's too late. You're already a slave of Satan. <laughs> right? You're, it's, it's too late. You're already a slave. You cannot be a slave. You will be either a slave of Satan or a slave of God. You're going to be either in darkness or light. There's no in between. But being a slave of Christ, now, this is a most delightful experience. He cares for us. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's a joy to be a slave of Christ. It's not that we're, okay, I'll obey you and then we've we've got whips on our backs no that's not the picture it's that we love the things of god and we love to obey him because he's given us his spirit that gives us the desire to do those things and so we look to god wanting to please him that's the heart of a true christian that god puts in each one of us and yes there's remaining sin that it goes up and down sometimes but this is the basic tenor of who we are He loves us, he guides us, he cares for us, he bears our burdens daily, he comforts us, he protects us. This is what it means to be a slave of God. He treats us well. And his view of us, we are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. That's what God says in Psalm 16.3. Isn't that a blessed thing? Well, back to Acts twenty six eighteen. We've seen so far that they must turn. You know, the goal of Paul's message that Jesus told them is that they must turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, and then thirdly, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. This is the goal. And what a blessing the forgiveness of sins! What a blessing! God promises in the new covenant, I will remember their sins no more. You know, a lot of us walked around with that burden. I remember when I was uh, first introduced to the gospel, I wasn't saved right away. And what I started to do was, oh, I need to start reading my Bible. And so I started reading it. I was, uh, I was in my 20s, late teens, and I started reading my Bible and but the, the problem is I was reading the Old Testament and the more I read, the more I, fa- I realized I was failing. And I'm reading all these laws and the Ten Commandments and I'm saying, oh boy, <laughs> right? And, and there's this burden that's on my back and I'm walking around thinking I'm a, I'm a, I'm a goner. I'm, I'm just, there's no hope for me. And then I get in, invited to, to this church and I hear the preaching of God's word and it's like the burden is lifted off. I just couldn't get enough. And this is what it is. This is what it means to have the forgiveness of sins. Is that the message is, you put your faith in Christ. And by the way, in Acts 26, 18, who have been sanctified in the final sentence, who have been sanctified by faith in me. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. And what does it say? That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Amen! Now that brings us to the fourth point. What did Jesus say is the design goal of Paul's message? That they may receive the forgiveness of sins and that they may obtain an inheritance. And again, this is briefly where this is our last point in Acts 26, 18. That we may obtain an inheritance. What, what do we mean by an inheritance? Well, we're, what we're familiar with is that the inheritance is a person's money or things that he designates to be given to his loved ones upon his death, right? So you're given land or you're given money. I don't know. <laughs> And uh, in the Old Testament, it was a piece of uh, real estate, right? The land of Canaan, that was their inheritance. But in the new testament we're talking about a spiritual inheritance now if you would turn to first peter chapter 1. 1 peter chapter one and again we're going to close with this in the new testament the inheritance is spiritual in nature now i'm not going to read it for the sake of time but I'll just refer to uh, different verses. So in verse four, it tells us that this inheritance of ours that we're waiting for is eternal. Look at verse four, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It never goes away, we never lose it. We always have this inheritance and we'll be enjoying it for eternity. It's called an eternal inheritance in Hebrews 9.15. Secondly, it's in heaven. Look at verse 4b. To obtain an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So our inheritance is not that... The uh, name it or claim it or, you know, the health and wealth gospel that, oh, well, boy, you believe in Christ and you're going to be rich in this world. No, that's not our goal. That's not our goal. Uh, leave the money, right? We, okay, if I don't get my part of the inheritance, that's fine. That's fine. That was, that's always been my, I was told once, I, there was a relative that died and somebody said, well, you can't, you're not going to get any unless you don't give it to the church. I don't want any money given to the church. I said, that's fine. That's fine. Don't give me the inheritance. I don't I don't want it. Because we're, we're we have to tithe everything that comes in our house. And I'm gonna tithe this stuff. In the end, they gave it to us. But that's fine. If they didn't, I'd be fine. It's a heavenly inheritance. That's where our hope is. That's where our heart is. It's in heaven. It's an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. We're told in Ephesians five five, and His kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom that we're waiting for. We're not waiting for something to develop down in uh, Jerusalem, in this world. That's not what we're waiting for. We're waiting for an eternal inheritance. It's the chief hope that's guaranteed to to true Christians. A living hope, as it says in verse 3, Who, in the middle of the verse, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. Notice that it's only those who are born again who qualify, who can see the light, who have their eyes open, who turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, kept by the power of God through faith. Verse 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith. They have their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in themselves. If our faith was in ourselves and our progress and our holiness, we'd be all sunk, we'd be in great despair. But thank God, our hope is in Jesus Christ, our righteousness, the one who has perfectly obeyed the law, so now we get his righteousness on us and that's how come we're accepted. And the basis of all this in in eternal inheritance is that it's the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Look at what it says in verse 3. Born again to to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no salvation or inheritance apart from the work of Christ. Now, just a couple applications. Some of them are repetitive. Our hope and inheritance, not of this world. This world is passing away and also its lust. Secondly, our hope and inheritance is not in earthly Jerusalem, as I just said. We are seeking the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Obtaining this inheritance is God's doing. We have an, in, in Ephesians 1, it says this, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to purpose. You see, God planned it for us. We've got reserved mansions in heaven. Not literal mansions, but he's got a place for us in heaven. It's reserved for, it's got our name on there. Those who have been called, may receive the promise of the inter- eternal inheritance Hebrews 9:15 In other words God gets all the glory for this we get an in inheritance we receive the forgiveness of sins we turn from darkness to light we turn from the dominion of Satan to God God gets the glory It's all him He's the one that moved He's the one that sent his spirit to open our eyes that we may see these things He gets the glory this is the ultimate blessing that we may receive the eternal inheritance. God is there. Christ is there. Our, our fellow brethren are there in perfection. There won't be any bickering. There won't be any, not that there's bickering here. I'm, I'm, a little bit, you know, but not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's going to be no sin in heaven and there's the the inheritance is a perfect one and it's far more glorious than the most wonderful thing that you've ever seen in this world it'll far surpass anything and we're pressing on to that goal let's pray heavenly father we do thank you for your word and we you pray that it might do a work in us that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of jesus christ pray that we might become brighter lights in this world pray that we might have a burden for those who are in the darkness pray that we might see them as being slaves of satan as we once were and that as you have delivered us which to many seemed an impossibility So we would continue to pray and witness to those who don't know the Lord, who are in that darkness and slaves of Satan, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.